This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, what makes a cult a cult? Stephen Kent, professor at the U of A, has been studying cults for over 40 years, and he brings his expertise to The Shift. We hear how cults are trap, uh, how cults track people. We hear how cults trap people inside them, and the practices that make cult leaders obscenely rich. Also on the podcast, Dr. Hannah Shalis joins us from Ukraine in Odessa with an update on the pivotal battle for Severodonetsk, Severodonetsk, and she gives us insight into Russia's cult-like obsessions, battles in the East, and if it's time for more sanctions against Russia. Plus, are you okay with bad commercials and pigs, and what about the World Cup? Separate topics, just so you know. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. Over the weekend, this weekend, I was glued to a Netflix special on cults. I thought, we need to learn more about cults. So it turns out there's people that know a lot about cults. And I think we found one of the best to help us understand what's going on. What is a cult? You know, what do they do? Um, why are they a thing? Why are we afraid of them? Stephen Kent, a PhD, MA, MA, BA, professor, faculty of arts, sociology, University of Alberta. Stephen, thanks for being here. Oh, Shane, it's my pleasure. So here we are um, with cults. You've studied them for decades and almost four decades. And the way you said it to me was controversial religions, which to me is, I would say, my personal, I'm trying to not just put my opinion on this, my personal opinion, I would say that makes sense. Uh, Although, isn't it with religion our job to not judge it for being controversial? (laughs) In democratic societies, we have to give uh, uh, permission to wide berth to allow people to believe whatever they want. It's the behaviors that become controversial. It's behaviors that sometimes emerge out of those belief systems that are harmful and that really we have to address. A lot of those harmful behaviors violate basic human rights and people's uh, integrity and safety. Those are the issues that concern people like me who study these groups and call some of these, these groups cults. So what does it take to become a cult? Let's start with the, what is a cult question in the very beginning and establish that as a baseline because a cult to me, I would guess um, there's manipulation going on. Um, at least negative manipulation. Manipulation happens every day. Uh, there's coercion and there's probably somebody a power imbalance of some sort inside a cult. How would you take that and put proper terminology on it and describe it? Well, they're very good uh, items that you've identified. The definition of cult that I'm using is a cult is a group that uses undue influence to create obedience and dependency. Often those demands for obedience and dependency are based upon the Uh, behaviors and teachings of a charismatic leader, but I don't emphasize charismatic leaders as much as some people do because they think about phenomena like QAnon. You've got a strong belief system uh, that really winds up being harmful to its members, but isn't necessarily uh, located just around an individual. Some people say Donald Trump. It's just that the QAnon conspiracy is so much broader Mm -hmm. and it incorporates so many other activities. But it's the undue influence, the attempt to uh, use punishments, rewards and punishments to direct a person's thinking, a person's emotions and a person's behavior toward a director's desired position 
that I and a lot of people think involves cultic behavior. Mm-hmm. Now, Shane, there's some groups that so, that individuals often call cults that are just unusual, interesting, perhaps even bizarre, but are not necessarily harmful. Think about cosplay, uh, costume play. Mm-hmm. Like or uh, furries the, uh, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, f- a fantasy uh, uh, comic book uh, character uh, conventions and so on. Unusual, peculiar, sometimes bizarre, not necessarily harmful. And some of us uh, would would call them cults, but it's a different sense than, than what a lot of us are concerned about, which is the element of harm, how these groups can really screw up people's lives. So when we look at the, the non-religious people will have a different lens than religious people in this. And so when you say obedience, many organized religions being obedient to the book, whatever, whichever book that they participate or celebrate is an important part of that. But when we look at a cult, I would assume, you know, cults are taking all of the earnings from an organization and they're taking that into the organ, the, the, you know, the, the church, if you will, or whatever they call it. They take all of your earnings as opposed to religions that we see today where you go and you donate to a collection plate. You don't, you choose to go to church. You choose which celebration you go to. You can go on Sundays or you can go on Tuesdays or you can go to both. Is that the difference between sort of the obedience from um, that uh, oppressive obedience versus the participation of obedience? It certainly uh, gets at a lot of issues. Uh, In a broad sense, the term cult usually gets applied to religious groups, but it can also be applied to political groups, economic groups, pseudo-medical groups, pseudo-psychological therapy groups, and all of those have issues about directions and control uh, uh, involving them. All of those can have directions and control about what people do with their bodies, how they think, how they, they behave, and so on. What separates out religion from these other systems of high demand, high control groups is the belief in the supernatural realm. Religions can say, we can reward and punish you in this life, but also you will face rewards and punishments in the supernatural in the next life. Mm. That's an extremely powerful motivation for people. Consequently, people are willing to undergo very often extreme sacrifices on earth in this life because they hope and they fear what's going to come afterwards. So when we talk about a cult, um, you know, there's religion, like you talked about, there's sort of the commune idea. Um, We're going to talk about polygamy as well. Uh, I say these distinctively. And then, but there's in today's world, uh, I'm guessing as a sociologist, you must be seeing so much in the realm of mental health, wellness, existential study, and mindfulness turning itself into, I'm going to say the tiptoeing against the lines of, of you know, some, some cultist type behaviors. Um, it must be a really something that's bubbling up in your world. The areas that, that you've identified uh, have been a concern for a lot of us for a number of years. Uh, the mental health area is a particular concern because uh, people can claim to be therapists without following any accepted, uh, scientifically proven uh, regime of practice. Consequently, they often cross boundaries between clients and therapists. 
They often get clients to engage in behaviors that are harmful. They, they often put beliefs into uh, people's minds that, that are dangerous and harmful to them that don't help their, their mental health. And these practices can be expensive to people. So uh, the mental health phenomenon, uh, the first time I started looking at some of these mental health groups was probably back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. It's a fine line between uh, motivation for self-improvement and self-improvement is a big motivator today for getting into these aggressive groups. Uh, a lot of these groups, it's a fine line between self-improvement and manipulation and harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these groups uh, claim to, uh, they attract people who want to self-improve. Uh, people are trying to make their lives better. Their lives may not be going very well. They may have problems. They may, may be trying to figure out the meaning of life. And a group comes along and says, we have the answers. If you follow our teachings, we will make your life better and you, you can realize your full potential. So follow us. And people hear the confidence of, of these uh, leaders and, and uh, manipulators and think, well, sounds like that person knows, knows what they're talking about. And so they give over themselves. Hmm. In the process of giving o- over themselves, they go through a very gradual step-by-step incremental series of, of adjustments. They make these adjustments probably in the context of being surrounded by other friends and family who are reinforcing these small changes. And so eventually a person begins at say point A and very very number of of gradual steps wind up in point Z, way, way off the charts. So normal, good, decent people wind up getting drawn into these groups often for the highest motivations and reasons and they get trapped very gradually, very slowly. If you use that analogy to look at what goes on now on social media, uh, the reinforcement and gradual transformation does not necessarily go on exclusively by other individuals. It goes on through algorithms. Right. Yeah. In today's world, it's changed, right? Yeah. If the algorithms draw you in, then you get into social network that's encapsulated. Yeah. All the friends on the social network are believing the same things, reading the same things. Yeah, reinforced. You have... You know, you followed the instruction of social media people, which is do your own homework. But you do your own homework and you're only looking at biased samples. Um, and you're also looking at a material that confirms your initial biases. So people think I've done my homework. I've read sources when, in fact, they've been drawn in and they can't recognize what's happened to them. Yeah, they get into this information uh, capsule like you talk about. And they can't get out of it. And at the same time, their bubble of proximity changes with the people around them. And th- that starts to maybe shrink or expand, but it's certainly the same proximity. This is amazing. This is, I love how this this goes. I mean, th- there's so much more to talk about here, Stephen. So we're going to have to reconnect for another day because we, we get into bias. We get into all those things that you're talking about. Uh, there was one study group I went to and they had an open question. You know, what do you need to know? They sort of got through the first first day of study and they said, you know, it's the end of the day before we get into the homework tonight. What, uh, what about questions? And people, someone said that. Well, I read online that this is a cult. And they had the best answer to the question, I think, that I've ever heard in any of the studies where they said, well, if we're a cult, we're the only cult in the world that lets you choose what you pay for, come to the classes that you want to come to, and call your mother more often. 
That's all we're telling you. So if we're a cult, then I guess we're a cult. But by the way, call your mother, right? Like it was a pretty good answer. And, um, and I like that answer. Why do we have that? Because I mean, people who get sucked into the proximity and all those things, right? Those capsules of information that you discuss. But we have this other thing where we want to label everything a cult to stay away from it as this sort of self-preservation lack of awareness as opposed to the hyper-awareness on the other end of it. So the pendulum does swing exactly the opposite way. And we often call things that aren't cults, cults. How does that happen? It's true that the cult label can be misused to identify everything that's different from yourself. And the reason perhaps that, that we're so attractive to looking at, at cult doc, uh, documentaries and videos and also applying these labels is it provides a way for us to self-reflect upon our own identities. No one thinks that they will get drawn into a cult. Yeah, at least I'm not uh, that cr- bad kind of idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm smarter than that. And so one of the questions or responses a lot of people have when they watch these documentaries and videos is, how can they be, how can they be so stupid? Right. In some ways, it's almost the right question, but with the wrong tone. It's not, how can they be so stupid? It's that, how can they be so stupid? Right. And stupid's really not the right word, but it's the fact that so many smart, logical, intelligent, uh, well-meaning people get drawn into these groups suggests that the answers as to how they can get drawn in has to exist in social psychology and manipulation. I've interviewed interviewed a lot of people who have come out of cults. And what struck me early on is a lot of the people I interviewed were way smarter than me. But I was asking them questions about what they had done as opposed to them asking me questions. So it's not a matter of of intelligence. So what is that like for those people that come out of cults that you talk about? Shame, regret? I mean, some of these people that you hear on the specials, some of them really own it and they just speak to it at the time I believed what he said at the time, all of the evidence around me told me that I should believe that the sky is green or whatever. And so they own the fact that at the time that was the only information they were given and they did subscribe to it. They were enrolled in it. So uh, it must be quite the process to rewire, unwind, uh, choose your metaphor. Oh, you're absolutely right. And it's, difficult for people involving uh, their their differential entries into cults. You get some people who join as adults. We've got a whole category of individuals, however, who are born into groups or whose parents joined groups when they they were infants or very young. Those people really have not known the outside world and may have great difficulty understanding the outside world and probably you've been taught the outside world is evil, destructive, harmful, uh, God's going to punish them if they leave and so on. For those people to leave, especially, it's extraordinarily hard. Moreover, uh, people may have cut off any kind of outside contacts with, with friends, former family. Uh, they may have a very limited or damaged uh, uh, curriculum vitae in terms of jobs and so on. They're embarrassed to go to a potential employer who, who wants to know what you've done for the last 10 years. Well, I was following a guru. You know, it's so it really can be embarrassing. Other people, and this is, I think you've alluded to these people, are getting out, out in front. 
in some ways, people can make a career out of being a former cult member. So there's a whole series of broadcasts now about uh, people discussing cults. It's fascinating. I mean, it takes me so many places. It takes me into the uh, geopolitics that we're seeing in today's world, uh, access to the internet, access to information, which is ironic that we say everyone will be better off if they had access to more information, but then the internet's putting this filter of bias on the information we're getting anyway. So I'm not quite sure that's the answer. Um, But we do see that. We see that this is everywhere. So the reason that I have these questions, I mean, and I think it's inspiring the humanity part, watching the uh, Warren Jeffs cult thing that's on Netflix, the the polygamy part, and this is this is the some of this is really the fundamental question it boils down to is that you hear these stories over and over again. I believe that everybody else was evil that wasn't part of our community until yes. I got a flat tire in the middle of nowhere and this really nice man and woman helped me out and they didn't judge me and they gave me a ride and they fixed my tire, or whatever. It takes those sort of incidents for someone to go, wait a second, this doesn't add up now. And they turn out to be very good friends down the road or whatever. You have these situations though on the other side of it with polygamy, for example, that Well, why can't they just shut it down? Well, the religion part, they're allowed to have that part, but they're not allowed to have the human trafficking part. They're allowed to have the religion part and live in their commune or whatever it is and be self-sufficient and away from the world. They're just not allowed to uh, marry girls at 14 and rape 12-year-olds. Like you sort of see this, uh, the kidnapping and moving people around from family to family. So at what point does that belief system and the law, because there are some of them are kind of gray areas, uh, to answer the question, why don't they just shut it down? There's been some interesting efforts to to shut down polygamy, and they haven't really worked. In this country, there have been a couple of criminal convictions, but a number of, of problems uh, ensue involving uh, 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 the criminal uh, prosecution of, of polygamy. Polygamy is a crime both in Canada and the U.S., Part of the trouble is you've got to have hard evidence. And many of the practicing current polygamists uh, believe in the system and or they're afraid to speak out against it. Yeah. I know a lot of people who have left abusive groups and are very quiet about their own experiences because they still want to have contact with their family members and their friends. Uh, the application of laws, labor laws, uh, sexual abuse laws and so on complicated because of the the, uh, religious cloak and the religious cloak varies in its strength from country to country. It's much stronger in the U S than in Canada. Uh, But still religious beliefs cannot trump other kinds of laws. The trouble is getting hard evidence about those violations. Labor laws, for example, uh, allow people to look at polygamy, not merely as abuses against women, but as abuses against young men. Young men, yep. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was evident in the Warren Jeffs thing, is that the amount of young men they kept around to build the things was staggering. Yeah. And, you know, know, from a social perspective, those kinds of unfair labor arrangements uh, usually involve dangerous working conditions for the the people, even adults who who find themselves having to work in... uh, in those environments, uh, but also it, it's a, a challenge uh, to surrounding legitimate businesses. How can you compete with what amounts to more or less free labor uh, to do similar kinds of jobs? Uh, so I, 
even outside of the impact that being in these groups can have upon members, they often can have societal implications for their members. Well, I was going to ask that. Sorry to interrupt your thought. Please continue. I thought you were done, but I have a question on that. Oh, well, uh, some of the most egregious uh, problems I've encountered in a number of groups are medical ones. Uh, A lot of these groups uh, hold bizarre pseudo-medical ideas. Um, They're related sometimes to supernatural beliefs. Sometimes they're not. But people make decisions following the best advice of their group's doctrines, and people die, and children are put at risk. So there's a whole series of problems, and occasionally those problems can trickle out into the wider society if the uh, issues involve uh, uh, contagious uh, diseases. There there have been a number of of, uh, viral contagions that have been spread by conservative religions in Alberta and British Columbia. Well, there's there was the story about the young boy, um, and uh, he was very sick, and his parents gave him just an herbal remedy. As I think he had meningitis, oh, yes. right? And, yes, you yes. know, and there there's that. It, it does come uh, to uh, the part with with the young men and everything else is that where wh- when you're talking about polygamy, and it's one man with twenty wives. Uh, where do all the young boys go? That's another <laughs> question that that doesn't really get answered. I mean, a lot of them get kicked out, but a lot of them just there's no record of them in society anyway. So do they get killed on the job site? Do they get, and nobody reconciles that. And here's the pragmatic question. Does this all about taxes for the government? Because I mean, when you've got multiple wives, you can't collect taxes the same way. And when you have multiple children and the labor stuff, you can't collect taxes the same way. I mean, just <laughs> allow it to be frank, if it will. Let me extend that, uh, that argument. Not only uh, are issues about paying taxes complicated, uh, but also child support is complicated. There aren't many people in the world who can support 20 wives. The only way that kind of system can operate is through public assistance, through food stamps, uh, you know, uh, public medicine, and so on and so on. Um, issues about income tax, as you suggest, get complicated because how do you file for your uh, – you can't file a joint income tax – if you've got one man and 20 women claim, claim to be wives. And it is true that in Canada, there were some significant income tax questions uh, uh, involving uh, the leader of the uh, polygamous group and outside of Creston, BC. So it's not only taxes, but it does involve taxes. Yeah. It does involve the relationship between uh, the public purse and, and, and the private uh, financial uh, abuses that uh, many of these groups perpetrate. So we've talked about how people get pulled into it. We've talked about why we find it's fascinating. Our guests here to help us understand, Stephen Kent, um, why do you study it of all the sociology things that you could study? What is it about uh, you for you that makes this so worth four decades of study? And at the same time, uh, which of the public stories that we know of probably still sticks with you as being the most surprising? I got interested in this phenomenon because of, uh, how should I say, cultural autobiography. I, I did my, my first uh, years uh, of study in the United States, and I entered university in 1969, 1970. The campuses blew up politically. There were riots on my campus out, outside of my dormitory room. By the time I graduated in 1973, politics had died down, but 
Meanwhile, all these gurus and swamis and enlightened masters and spiritual teachers had swept through youth culture. And I saw a, a lot of them. And I, I saw one in particular whose talk was absolutely absurd, Shane. It was just bizarre. But driving back or riding back in the, the uh, in a car where two people in the front seat had just gone to it, they were so moved by the same talk. They wanted they were talking about returning the next day to kiss the guru's lotus feet. I just couldn't understand it. Same room, same talk, completely different interpretation. So that's what got me curious. And eventually I found you know, some academic articles that discussed those issues, and I got drawn further and further in. I got a grant from the uh, Social Sciences and, and Research Council of Canada in 86 to study. Call, uh, by that time, I'd moved to Canada. Um, I wanted to study cultural religions between the U.S. and Canada because there's a lot of cross-border movement. And I got a grant. I started, uh, uh, I went to the f- newspapers, found people who were mentioned in articles, often who were parents who had kids in groups, and I called them up. And the parents started telling me stories. I bet. And the parents started giving me documents. You know, and sometimes with uh, some groups, I'd say, what? what? Can, can you prove that? Can you show me? And occasionally they'd say, wait a minute. Get up, go to another room, come back with a document, and say, wow. "Here's a document." And I, I, it was just extraordinary stories. Well, it was those documents that took down Warren Jeffs uh, when they finally raided and found the vault of all the documents of oh. uh, his father and everything behind it. That story is staggering. Um, I'm going to tell everybody that it's not for the faint of heart. It's four episodes on Netflix, and you might not like it. It's very nasty at times, and it ends. If you think you've watched a little bit of it, the ending of it is the most of the nasty. Um, that's 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 going on there. Masters of manipulation and and yeah. people who are just desperate. And I think of those babies that were born into it. They didn't were never exposed to anything else, and then they try to come out of it, and they have no idea what life looks like. Uh, it's scary. And Shane, one more comment. Uh, because I heard so many abusive uh, stories. And by that time, I was a university professor. I felt really a moral obligation to tell their stories. I had positions of power that they did not have. Consequently, and their stories were compelling and moving and important. So I felt a a social responsibility to get out those stories. And oddly enough, I've paid a price. I've gotten a lot of criticism from the groups themselves for uh, talking about the abuse, um, manipulation, child abuse that I found, but uh, more and more people are talking about those, those issues. Now I no longer feel isolated like I used to. Hmm. Well, sociology is fascinating. Um, this is incredible. Thank you so much for the insight. Uh, Stephen Kent here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Shane. This is the shift podcast. Hannah Shalist in Odessa, Ukraine. Hannah. Hello. Um, some information. Um, I've taken exception a little bit to what we've seen here in the news. Not that it's my place, but the reality is, is so many different news channels have not been uh, able to are not sharing the news out of Ukraine quite as much. And I suppose there are other things that are going on in the world that do matter not to be forgotten. You know, there's been so much that's gone on in Canada and the United States, too. I just guess that we believe that what we stand for here, if we're going to talk about Ukraine, um, is to make sure that everybody knows what's going on. 
And if we stop talking about it, I was given this quote once, Hannah, that silence is endorsement. And that's incredibly important to us to continue this conversation. How are you doing? Uh, good morning. Yes, you know, this phrase is absolutely right, because so when it is the silence, it means we allow a lot of, of the information manipulation trying to be uh, um, either online or in the social networks or just gossips getting around or even some politicians spreading them. But also when it is the silence, it is like the acceptance of the of the situation. And when it is the fight, the acceptance of the situation is probably the worst, because in this way, it means you are surrendering rather than you are ready to fight and to prove your cause. I, um, we've been doing some work, Hannah, here on The Shift, learning about cults, what is a cult, what makes a cult. And what I've learned from, from our work around cults, and of course there are cults that are based on faith, there are cults that are based on people who are just manipulative, and there are cults that people try to just scam you know, money for whatever reason they can inspire people to give them money. One of the things that I've really, really learned in our conversation about cults is about the politics and how some politicians, the autocrats and all those things, authoritarian governments are fundamentally operating like a cult. And in fact, it's quite scary. Now, with your work in and around, you know, politics and, and advocacy and policy and all the things that you see around the world, this might not be new information to you, but it truly is honestly new information to me. Um, that's kind of wild when you think about it. That's really, truly what's happening inside Russia right now. Yes, you know, the ideology, the some types of the political ideology, they are absolutely the same as the cults. And what is interesting, they are the most uh, um, close to uh, religious cults. Because usually they have uh, uh, one person as the idol, as the messiah, or it doesn't matter, you can call it in the different ways, but uh, really trying to uh, be the uncompromised, the single, and uh, that somebody is listening. So very similar to what uh, we can hear in the religious cults very often, some type of the leader. Uh, it can be the gadu, it can be the uh, uh, profi or somebody else, it uh, d- doesn't matter, but one personality around uh, uh, whom everything is happening. So the same is happening usually in the uh, uh, dictatorship or in the autocratic uh, regimes. And when you add to these the certain ideas, so not only personality, but the ideas to believe, especially when these ideas are about your supremacy, That's exactly what you are coming to. That's why uh, I'm absolutely um, can agree with you. When you go to the countries like uh, North Korea or Russia, uh, it's very similar to the cults and that type of the religious cults. Well, isn't it interesting, right? And and the promises of afterlife, the promises of mystical uh, being status and all of those things. When you look at some of the recent essays written by Vladimir Putin, there's been an awful lot of that, that, you know, dying with the USSR back together again. And if it's not worth having it back together again, you know, we can we can all, you know, die and stuff like that. So it is getting wildly into the mystical almost in some of the essays and, and recent writings that, that Putin has put out. 
You know, it's been even earlier, a few years ago, I remember in one of the TV shows, one of the most popular anchors were saying like, oh, yes, we can use a nuclear weapons, everybody die, but Russians will go to heaven and all others to evil. And that was the first news channel. So something like the main TV channel and the talk show of the Russian Federation. But also you need to understand the personality of Mr. Putin. He is very mystical. Uh, he, uh, like in his biography, you can find all his connections with the monks uh, in the very small monasteries uh, with a very mystical background around them. Uh, also, the last few years, he's been uh, traveling together with his uh, minister of defense to the Siberian villages, to some shamans, and uh, he is really uh, um, enjoying uh, or believing in all this stuff. That's why uh, some of the elements uh, you definitely can see incorporated in his beliefs. Yeah, and it's it's wild. I, you're far more educated and experienced with this than I am, but as you look through uh, leaders and political leaders in history, whether it's some of the days of clans or formal governments, there's been a recurring um, storyline of clairvoyance and, uh, you know, different uh, types of uh, mystical people advising leaders on what to do. There's been many wars that have been fought in this world uh, over because of the fact that the interpretation of what a mystic has shared with the leader. So we haven't come very far, I guess, when we talk about it. It is quite fascinating. Anna Shalist is in Odessa. And um, how are things in Odessa for you? I'm assuming you're in Odessa. Actually, that's terrible of me because you've been traveling. Um, the, how are things for you? Yes, I'm in Odessa now, and uh, uh, you know it's it's still not bad. Uh, even that the situation is changing all the time. Like we had uh, uh, quite a calm week last week, but the last three days each night we have the air raid. Uh, so uh, that's why it's very difficult to say. Like one night can be a calm, another uh, night. Like two days ago we had something like six air raids from 10 p.m. till 10 a.m. And that's definitely not right because you cannot sleep and it, it is very uh, nervous because you don't know usually when it is the air raid, is it your uh, region targeted or some others. And uh, definitely with all these announcements of the additional military support that our partners uh, just announced, we are expecting more and more um, air raids, more and more shelling from the Russian Federation because they are hunting uh, the uh, logistical routes, uh, the trains and everything where the uh, weaponry can be delivered. But also because on the south, um, around Kherson region, Ukrainian armed forces are advancing step by step, very slowly, but advancing uh, with counterattack. That's definitely also uh, trigger the additional uh, uh, shelling from the Russian Federation from the sea. Uh, so uh, uh, not to allow forces that are located in Odessa to assist the neighboring region. Some of that... Um you know, Donbass region, uh, Severodonetsk and, uh, Donetsk and all those, they, I mean, it has become very, very ugly from what we can see. Um, the echoes of Mariupol happening again. What, what do you see, Hannah? What do Ukrainians talk about in regards to that battle in the east? Um, we definitely understand that this battle in the East currently is the most important and the most violent. And for us, it is not only repetition of Mariupol, uh, but also the repetition of 2014, because uh, many of uh, those villages and uh, towns where now the heavy fightings are happening, that is exactly the places where the heavy fightings happened in 2014, 2015. 
Uh, so this uh, town's been just uh, reconstructed uh, with the support of um, European Union, for example, money of some other partners, because many houses been destroyed uh, eight years ago there. And now it is again. So these people are becoming the IDPs for the second time. And uh, we know that the fightings are very heavy because more and more people are reporting about the dead Ukrainian uh, friends. Uh, just for the last few days, uh, several people that I knew lost uh, their relatives uh, in those battles. So that is becoming like, you know, it's not something that far, 1,000 kilometers from you. Uh, it is now not only in the news, but these heavy fightings on the east is now the daily news for each family, unfortunately. There's a bunch of politicians that have come to Kiev. They've come again. Um, and I'm going to be cynical for a second, Hannah. So you can be more pragmatic, if you like, and uh, diplomatic, if you like. But Italy's leader, France's Emmanuel Macron, and Germany's leader um, all travel to Ukraine. Now, what they're saying is, you know, it's an important time to come. At, uh, this quote from Macron said, we're at a point when we need to send clear political signals as Europeans towards Ukraine and its people when it's resisting heroically. Now, I struggle with that. I'm not there uh, even, but I struggle with that. We're at a point when we need to send clear signals. No, no. Nay, nay, my friend. Uh, that point was more than 100 days ago, in fact. So there have been lots of talk about... Well, Macron and, and his people around him are saying, well, just give up the stuff in the East and don't embarrass Putin and all these things. How does this land for Ukrainians in Kiev when um, these leaders that their intentions have been doubted? How does this work for you? Uh, you know, definitely these three politicians have different reputation, they have different issues, um, and uh, uh, you're right that just the moral support, that was the issue 100 days ago. And considering how many leaders of other countries been traveling to Kiev within the last uh, uh, two months, uh, they're a little bit late. And that is also very interesting that they decided to come together. It's probably their demonstration of the old Europe against the new Europe uh, because uh, uh, they are trying to, like, you know, they are losing their moral authority within the European Union. Uh, the countries of the Baltics, the Eastern Europe are definitely getting on the front stage uh, with their leadership uh, and responsibility in this crisis. And uh, probably they decided to unite and come together exactly to, to demonstrate that they are still in power. Uh, questionable. But what will be the next? You know, that, that is really like uh, the results of the visit will be important, what they are bringing. With France, at least France is bringing us all for the last few months the quite an important um, artillery that's really already working good uh, on the front line. Uh, but uh, Macron calls to Putin, that, that's something di disgusting. That was okay in the beginning. We understand all the mediation efforts. But when it's been uh, 20s or 30s call, that that's became quite a strange as the yeah, uh, ex-girlfriend uh, uh, is calling to the boyfriend in the middle of the night. With mm -hmm. the Italian leader, Italians also providing quite an um, assistant, both military and humanitarian, to Ukraine. Uh, but with Draghi, it was the problem when he proposed a strange peace plan that de facto proposed for Ukraine to surrender part of its territory. And German leadership, that is the most problematic. Because uh, uh, we know about millions and millions of dollars that Germany government is spending for humanitarian aid and for economic support of Ukraine. No questions. Ukrainians are very grateful for these. 
But in terms of military support, they've been promising already for two months, naming a very particular weaponry and still haven't delivered anything. And that's definitely bring a lot of questions. Um, not speaking about all the political statements from the German uh, uh, chancellor. That's why it will be really interesting to see what will be the result of today's visit, uh, what they not only promise, but probably announce. And uh, the only thing that I'm afraid that they will start again uh, pushing Ukrainian leader. For example, for the uh, bargaining, we will give you the candidate status for the European Union and you will surrender something for the Russian Federation. So uh, unfortunately, in this way, I'm also very cynical and critical and uh, uh, waiting uh, uh, how far they will go in their bargaining. Well, I acknowledge the fact that you are so clear and, and diplomatic about it because I feel cynical about it and I'm not Ukrainian. I'm not there. I'm not seeing the same connection to my homeland that you're seeing, Hannah. So I just want to make sure that I acknowledge that. And frankly, I, I'll, I'll admit, I said, when I saw the German leader going, I was like, is he bringing more helmets? Like, is that, what is the deal here? And maybe it's not the appropriate time to be funny, but that's really, truly what my question was. You know, what's the point? Um, you know, uh, sometimes helmets are also very important, but at the same time, we understand that uh, from big countries, you are expecting uh, big decisions. And with the uh, uh, latest uh, Russian invasion, that's quite an interesting that the small countries provided much bigger support to Ukraine. For example, yesterday, it's been a very important meeting, so-called Rammstein 3, when 50 countries uh, uh, gathered in Brussels discussing exactly the military support to Ukraine. And small Slovakia, with not that big armed forces, but they just announced uh, additional support to Ukraine um, uh, as a helicopters. Previously, they delivered us S-300, that is very important, air defense system. And uh, when uh, it, uh, like this small country, provides this, when Estonia provided us already support costed one-third of their military budget, uh, also small Estonia, and Germany that pretended to be a mighty big European country is providing only helmets, that looks a little bit odd. And that's uh, why there are so many questions um, against the German government, especially when you hear the German politicians, I mean, the members of the parliament, journalists, experts, all of them are pushing their government, or they cannot understand why is uh, such a strange position. I still think you're being uh, you're being very generous when you say odd, at least. Um, let's talk about stamps. Hannah Shalis is in Odessa, Ukraine. This is a, a bit of a good story that comes out of a terrible situation. Uh, they uh, released a stamp, the Russian warship Dunn stamp, which was the Snake Island uh, conversation. There's a new one that's been reported that's coming out. It looks like a, an artist's rendering of the tractor when they stole the tank. Now, um, these are these are interesting. Um for, to, to see, and there was there was long queues of people lining up to buy the previous stamps. How motivating is this for Ukrainians when they're commemorating these heroic moments of the war already in trying to keep the economy going and keep everybody aware of these victories? Is that is that incredibly important in the eyes of Ukrainians? 
you know, that is very interesting. With the first uh, uh, stamp, it became uh, uh, so crazily popular because it was the very moment when it happened. So uh, they uh, printed and, uh, uh, like, officially, uh, um, I, I don't know the English word for this, when you make the first uh, uh, stamp for it uh, uh, so it can be officially used. So this ceremony happened in the evening, and uh, in the night uh, we uh, managed to charge it uh, this particular Russian ship. So uh, that's why it became so symbolic and people became so crazy in the morning about this uh, because we call it as a forecast stamp. So you really uh, just not guessed, but like you, you made all your wishes in this uh, stamp and it became reality just in a few hours in the night. Uh, that, that's why uh, it was all this agiotage with the, uh, with the first stamp. As for now, it's definitely the, the, all these months you can find a lot of postcards, stamps, T-shirts, with all the phrases or the uh, situation that became very symbolic for this war. And uh, this particular, the new stamp, what came, it, it combined. Yeah, we lost Hannah there for one second. She will come back. Um, we're just chatting with uh, Dr. Hannah Shayla. She's PhD in Odessa, Ukraine. She says policy. Clarity on information is a big one for the uh, Ukrainian PRISM, which is her organization. Uh, Hannah, we were just you were just telling me about the new stamp with the tractor pulling the tank. Yes, and uh, th th this new stamp, it, uh, um, it combines two very interesting things. First is the phrase, good evening, we are from Ukraine. That was a phrase of the uh, uh, governor of Mykolaiv region, um, who became very, very popular with his uh, short TikTok videos. Each evening he was coming with a big smile, saying, good evening, we are from Ukraine, and that is the news. So now it is like a common uh, saying all the time. And the second is the picture, because uh, all media showed these pictures of the Ukrainian uh, um, tractors, the farmers, uh, the uh, uh, Roma people stealing the Russian uh, um, armored vehicles in different regions, exactly with the tractors. That's why uh, it seems to me that this uh, postmark also will be very popular uh, because of the symbolic uh, um, picturing, wording and the atmosphere around it. Uh, it's fascinating. I, I love the inspiration that comes with it. And in today's world, how different from the world wars of the past when, when people couldn't just go buy a T-shirt supporting, you know, the group. So when the people around them feel motivated every day just because of the fact that they've got some slogan saying or photograph or drawing on it that inspires people, the world has changed a lot and at the same time, not very much. And I think it's interesting to see where the world's come. Hannah, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate you. This is the Shift Podcast. It's time for this little segment we like to call Are You Okay With? Are you, are you, are you okay? Okay. Okay. Are you okay with? You can contribute to 877-399-9898. Get your text messages in and let us know if you're good with this stuff because some of it gets wild, some of it gets weird, and just downright concerning. Are you okay with... Commercials, in particular, bad ones. Bad, Ooh, bad commercials. Bad ones. Uh, it depends on what kind of bad. Like a really terrible local car dealership ad that has like terrible computer graphics and bad acting. Yes, those are a cornerstone of our society. But like a really preachy one. Uh, it, it's funny because recently, do you remember in 2017 when uh, Kylie Jenner made the Pepsi ad where? There was like a riot police were about to like beat a crowd of people and then she handed a cop a pepsi and then everything was okay 
That mm, is yep. not okay. That was the worst thing ever. Uh, the Boys, the Amazon TV show about superheroes, they parodied that to perfection. And so those types of ads, not okay. But funny, silly, bad ads, low budget, yes, all the way. All the way. Okay. You know what? Commercials... I like commercials that really just serve the people, right? That serve you and say, hey, this is something that, you know, might be awesome for you. I like that. I like marketing. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. I love marketing. One of the, I think, missed callings for me is that storefront imagery. Like when you're in the mall and you're walking through the mall and then you see in the windows of the store, they've got those big pictures and posters. I love that kind of marketing. That to me yeah. is one of my favorites of all time. And so I do love marketing, but sometimes it goes bad and sometimes it's not very well thought out. And sometimes it makes you wonder how somebody paid for that. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Well, in crypto, the crypto market's been struggling around the world, right? Uh, cryptocurrencies are down 70% in some cases, depending on what it is. And, you know, that's what happens in markets. Shouldn't be a big surprise when you hear of the depression and all kinds of markets collapsing in the world that cryptocurrency itself would go through a similar fate at least once or more than once. Well, one of the biggest crypto trading sites, crypto.com, is laying off hundreds of workers. Now, isn't it crypto.com that took the deal for the Staples Center? Mm -hmm. Crypto.com arena, cringiest name for so, a stadium ever. Yeah, I know. It sounds creepy. Uh, but who is to blame for all this? If you listen to the internet, it's Matt Damon's fault. Okay and his horrible commercial for Crypto.com. History is filled with almosts, with those who almost adventured, who almost achieved, but ultimately, for them it proved to be too much. Then there are others, the ones who embrace the moment and commit. And in these moments of truth, these men and women, these mere mortals, just like you and me, as they peer over the edge, they calm their minds and steal their nerves with four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. All right, turns out fortune favors those with really good timing. That's really what it boils it, down pretty to. Pretty much, yeah. Now, that is, you know, way heavy. <laughs> it doesn't explain. Yeah. yeah, like, it's it's not motivating. I think that was the intention was to motivate people to be like, yeah, man, I'm brave. I'm going to buy they the were, stuff. They were selling it as if, like, crypto is is the next moon landing. That they were mm. trying to say that if you don't invest in crypto, you're living in the Stone Age. That's basically how that ad came across. Mm. Well, it's true. And you know what? I think that when you look at these things, you have to remember that the people who are trying to get you to buy crypto already own crypto. And the more demand, the more money they make. Now, I'm not mm. saying crypto is bad. I'm still absolutely interested. I haven't bought into it yet. I have a note sticky right there about what I need to do to get started. And I, I'm not personally, I'm not against it. It's something that I monitor constantly. I haven't pulled the pin yet. And, um, so I, I'm not on this side or that side of the, um, of the conversation on this one. So 
Writer Tom Schwartz shared on Twitter exactly how much Bitcoin has become devalued today compared to when the commercial first aired. If you bought $1,000 of Bitcoin the day Matt Damon's Fortune Favors the Brave commercial came out, what would it be worth today? $375. To quote Ryan O'Donnell, oof. Bitcoin has lost more than two-thirds of its value compared to all-time highs of November last year. Ethereum, another widely followed cryptocurrency, was down roughly 17% on Monday. The crypto market as a whole dropped below a value of U.S. $1 trillion. Ryan would like to point out that South Park saw this coming, kind of like how The Simpsons is good at it, just one week after Matt Damon's ad aired. What does Matt Damon say on that Bitcoin commercial? Fortune favors the brave. My dad said he listened to Matt Damon and lost all his money. Yes, everyone did, but they were brave in doing so. And that was before it dropped, right? Yeah, that was way before the market crash. That was like, uh, that was the Super Bowl when that came out. That was so. That's February. That's super. That's that was a Super Bowl commercial, too. Way to go, Matt Damon. Matt. Way to go, Matt Damon. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, not funny, funny, but weird, funny. You know what I'm saying. Are you okay with? Ooh. I'm waiting here for a second because. Okay. So, like, I don't, these ones I don't read in advance because I like to be surprised, right? Oh, you're prepping something. Okay, cool. Yeah. Are you okay with? Hit it again, Leo. Are you okay with pigs? Oh, you're getting your sound effect, right? Ah, pigs. That is loud. That is a loud. Okay, thank you. Oink, oink. Um, Pigs seem like pretty interesting creatures. They're smarter than dogs, which I think is really interesting, really fascinating. Um, But I don't love pork like pork chops no 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 but you know bacon and ribs are 10 out of 10 so as an animal they're interesting and as food it's not my first choice but i think pigs are yeah i think pigs are okay you need to try like the pork tenderloin slow cooked Oh, man, just pull it apart add in the barbecue sauce pulled pork pork sandwich Tenant is excellent, and I used to have a secret barbecue sauce, but Mm. it just takes it's just like kind of an event. And I would rather make something else with that much time and effort than pulled pork, probably. Okay, well, I need to show you how to make pulled pork in a slow cooker. So you basically add it in, you put in some seasoning, it's done, you drain it, pull it apart, mix in your secret sauce. So, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Tennessee if you live in Tennessee and you are missing a 300 pound pig we found him the Carter County Sheriff's Office said in a Facebook post that the chunky pig why are we fat shaming a pig here on the shift that's not okay it is a I'm not saying it's a bad thing it is a chunky pig it like big it's a big pig which is a compliment. You can be a big pig too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could call yep. it a porky pig. No, <sighs> a portly pig. Portly. Uh, look, we're not going to fat shame the pig. the The pig is perfect, exactly as it is. It's yes. been wandering for days in the judge. 
and no County. owners. Judge County. Yeah. <laughs> Judge County. Oh, I think that well, was missing I'm, a word. I yeah, was trying yeah, to find yeah, my yeah. way, and uh, I think that yeah, we're just going to have to, yeah, yep. we're going to have to just settle ourselves for the fact that uh, this one was uh, happening here. That's a typo. Thank you. Uh, a couple, actually. Okay, uh, let's try that again. The Carter County Sheriff's Office said in a Facebook post that the Chunky Pig has been wandering for days in the county, and no owners have yet to come forward to claim the 300-pound porker. <laughs> <laughs> the animal's been spotted numerous times. Kind of hard to miss it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, around this general neighborhood, this is according to people who live there, the Carter County Sheriff's Office is taking it a step further. It's now legit. They've posted on Facebook. They're trying to find the animal's home. If the owner's not found, the process of getting her out of flower beds and gardens could get a bit more difficult. We have no way to transport a 300-pound pig. We have nowhere to put a 300-pound pig safely. Uh, unless we ask for a foster and we're happy to ask for a foster but still we have no way of transportation for that large of an animal animal shelter leaders say they're hopeful a local farmer might step in with their own animal trailer to help pick her up oh that's fun shannon Passata, director of the elizabethan carter county animal shelter told news 11 I understand they can do a lot of damage in the short period of time. We would like, uh, we would think that someone would be looking for this pig and notice that it's on the run. On the run, really? Is it really on the run? <laughs> it's not run. I think it's anywhere. more on the waddle. Yeah, on the, on the bum bum. <laughs> oh, well, where's my pig? Have you lost a pig? Lost pig. That's fun. What would you do with a 300 pound pig? I know you would just sort of get it somewhere, give it some food, and wait. There's a lady on TikTok who has a giant pig, I'd say probably about 300 pounds as well, that uh, she says good morning to every day, and it waddles its way over, gets some food, and just like grazes. I know that like for a lot of farmers, they'll buy animals that don't necessarily add a lot to their farm, but they just like having the animals there and taking care of the animals. It like adds to the whole experience. So I'm mm-hmm. sure that- Donkeys. This, that, Yep. Don't, well, they help protect the, the, the flock as well. So I feel like this guy's going to find a home. I'm confident. Right. I'm hopeful. Right. If not, Ryan O'Donnell will adopt him into his apartment in downtown Calgary. I'm sure my neighbors would love that. Although they stomp around upstairs constantly. So I can oh my, I can do Spider Pig like from the Simpsons movie. I'll just need like 15 spider people pig, to help me lift him up. But I can now stomp on their roof with Spider Pig. Done deal. This is a great idea. Okay. And uh, you're going to want to Google that and see it on YouTube, by the way, if that made no sense. Are you okay with the World Cup? The World Cup? I didn't really watch any of them after 2010. I liked the 2010, the South South Africa one. That was really cool. Uh, I remember watching that and I haven't really cared, but obviously we'll be tuning in for Qatar because Canada is going to play there. Um, but I do enjoy watching people who are obsessed with soccer lose their minds over it. It's like, mm. it's excellent. Soccer fans, fans of the footy, dream that their country makes it to the World Cup someday. Here in Canada, we got to experience that rush again after decades of drought, missing out on the championship. Oh, Australia has qualified. Mm-hmm. They have. What? Can yes. you believe it that Australia has qualified? 
It's actually the fourth year in the row that they've done it, or fourth cup really? in the world. Yeah. Really? That's pretty great. I like yeah. that. Anyway. Do you want me to stall Aus- so you get the song? <laughs> yeah, do that. Say something. So, uh, Australia uh, actually has a pretty good soccer team. Uh, they uh, they won a game. They won their game against Peru on penalties. Actually, here's a great stall. You want to know something weird? Any time that for the past few years, if a Trudeau government does not have a majority, Peru does not qualify for the World Cup. It is a bizarre coalition, not causation thing. But whenever there is a Trudeau minor- majority government from the mm-hmm. 70s to now, Peru qualifies. They did not qualify wow. this year. Yeah. Wow. So everybody outside Toronto and Peru cheering for Team Peru. Yes. Basically. Apparently. That's based on stats, not opinion, by the way. Don't judge me. And Australia is here. Therefore, we have to play the Australia thing. Just drive from town to paradise and you'll see why we call Australia Australia is the latest nation to qualify for the World Cup, and they're really, really excited, like a lot of excited. They qualified in dramatic fashion, beating Peru 5-4 in a penalty shootout. And it was all too much for one journalist down under. Take a listen. That's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Tony Armstrong. He and other fans going absolutely wild in Melbourne over their team's victory. Uh, that was from CNN. The Aussies call them Socceroos. Really? Yes, that is an actual thing. They they are officially known as the Socceroos, which is the most Australian thing. <laughs> I respect that. The 42nd ranked Aussies entered the match as underdogs or underroos. <laughs> 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 uh, that's pretty good i'm gonna give you that one. Oh, against the 22nd ranked peruvians but outplayed their south american opponent through the first 90 minutes of the match australia will compete in group d at the world cup with france denmark and tunisia it's the fifth straight world cup that the socceroos cool. have qualified for very cool stuff Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.